Like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Uh, with that said, we now go into the third of what some call the pastoral letters. You're probably aware it's an 18th century designation. In other words, before the 1700s, they didn't even call them the pastoral letters. They called them personal because <clears throat> after the first, <clears throat> excuse me, nine of the first 13 letters, uh, nine of the 13 letters Paul writes are circular. They're written to locations. That starts at Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and the Thessalonian letters are all uh, written, obviously, to a very specific place. The last of the four letters, uh, the last four letters, I'm sorry, of those 13, are all personal letters. Interestingly, they're the last four letters he writes. Now, they're not written, let me just put this, make this clear, I don't believe that the people who constructed the Bible initially put them in the order that they thought they would be uh, chronologically, because if that were the case, Second Timothy would be the last letter. But there is a couple of things to learn from that. Uh, one of them is, if you think about it, that Paul starts his letter personally uh, responding to the concerns of every church that he had, well, that he had planted and two that he had in Romans and Colossians. But he, you know, he hears about a problem and boom, he is on it. He's going to write that letter and he's going to get it. And he's going to get personally involved. And I kind of wonder if Corinthians, that those letters somehow kind of shifted him to a place where he realizes that he can't do it himself completely. Now, again, I'm reading into this and forgive me for that. But ultimately, the last letters he sends are to people he's now put in charge of things. And somewhere down the line, Paul went from personally responding to every fire to him actually sending his fire brigades of the men he's raised up. And I think there's something to be said for that. And I really do find that that's the third aspect of our vision is to see men raised up, people raised up uh, within the vision that God has given us to be able to know that when you send them, they're going to get the same thing. Or to be honest, in some cases, even better. So Paul's concentration, though, as we're going to see here in this letter, is not on church administration or, the, or semantics but on elder qualifications which are character and of doctrine. Very different. I mean, once Paul gets to this point where he starts to see churches in a mess, and we'll see exactly why he wrote that, because he tells Titus, uh, that it isn't like he focuses on the things that a lot of churches focus on, which is let's focus on the administration, let's make sure that, that all of our ducks in a row, our T's are, are crossed, our I's are dotted, you know, that kind of stuff that's... And not that stuff's bad, it's just not his primary focus. But rather, he wants to make sure that we understand what a mature person looks like in Christ. Uh, now, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a Presbyterian church. Uh, Presbyterian comes from the word presbyteros. Presbyteros, presbyteras. Uh, the difference is male and female, but presbyteros means, in essence, old guy. All it means is mature. That's the kinder word. <clears throat> Today, <clears throat> I received my first letter from the Greenwich Council for the Adult and Older People. Yeah, I didn't even know how to respond to that. I just started laughing. I'm glad you're laughing. You're laughing, right? Because that's how completely irrelevant is that. To, anyways, but I'm starting to look at it and I'm thinking, okay... <clears throat> how fitting that it would come on the day, and I'm sure it was the reason that God had him send it was because we're going to go through this issue on elders. But a Presbyterian church, by the way, is a church led by a group of elders. That's the idea. People that are considered mature. Elder wasn't initially just, <clears throat> excuse me, some badge you gave someone. It wasn't like, hey, you can graduate and get the position of an elder. 
you were recognized as mature. And what happened is, as a result of that, somebody was standing by you and said that there is a level of maturity that now should put you in a position where you should turn your attention to, to reaching out to people that are younger in the faith than you. The idea was not just to give you a badge so you can actually find that you had a place of importance, but rather you were handed a position. But once you get to this place as a mature individual and you're recognized in your maturity, you should then take that maturity and start raising up other people younger than you. Otherwise, what happens is that one guy that in essence is trying to raise up people to become mature, when they become mature and then they just bench themselves, well, then this guy has to keep going. And no matter how much the church grows, per se, he's responsible for everyone when the responsibility should be to the guys that are now be, being raised up and mature so they can go and do it, in essence, so that the whole church gets ministered to. And you see this with families that have like a thousand children. If you've ever seen that. But ultimately what happens is the older one or two of them, once like kid number six or seven comes out, no, that's a real crude way of saying that, uh, that what happens is they become like the next mom. I mean, you watch them. We have friends that have six, seven children. And you watch them. The oldest child is usually almost exactly a carbon copy of mom when it's a girl. Uh, and, and just, you know, when mom leaves, it's just like, look, at I, I need you to help me in this role. Well, it makes sense in a family. I mean, with that many kids, when you have that many inmates over, you know, outnumbering the wardens, I mean, obviously, you need some backup. And, you know, you have that many kids throwing things on the floor and needing to be wiped and cleaned and bathed and so forth. You kind of need that. Well, consider that's what a family is in Christ, is that there's still people who need to be wiped and cleaned and bathed and invested in and sat for time out and those kind of things. Those kind of things are really important. And what Paul ultimately as he's doing is he as he sees these men raise up he goes now i want you to do the same now uh <clears throat> for what it's worth for those who like to say things like you know the bible was just made up by a bunch of people back in the 300s or the 500s ad or whatever it's important to note that different people have quoted titus and i just like to bring that up clement of rome uh, they considered him the next pope after peter for what it's worth 88 to 101 ad he quotes from the book Arrhenius from 130 to 202 AD, he quotes from Titus, Theophilus of Antioch, he quotes from, uh, he's a bishop of Antioch, he, and he was a, a bishop for about 15, 16 years, uh, until about 183 AD, he quotes Clement of Alexandria, people from very different places in the world, by the way, Alexandria is in Egypt, Antioch, of course, north of Syria, uh, until about 215 AD, he's quoting him Tertullian until 220 AD, and the reason I say that, that's five, six guys that are well-known, established, historical figures that are all quoting from this book. Anyone that says that the book was written anywhere after that is, is talking nonsense, because these guys were already quoting them way before that, for what it's worth. Now, Titus. Do you know how many times we read of Titus in the book of Acts? None. Titus is not mentioned once in the book of Acts, which is strange. Because he's mentioned, actually, at least 12 different times in the other books. Primarily, by the way, in 2 Corinthians. Two-thirds of the times you'll find him in 2 Corinthians. Now, we do find, by the way, that he's actually in events that take place. Because there are two really, really very big, uh, in essence, showdowns that take place in the book of Acts. The first time, when Gentiles get saved. That's in chapter 10. Peter is preaching to Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, they freak out because he went and preached the gospel to people who weren't Jewish. 
And, and there were a lot of Jewish people who believed under the influence of a man named Shammai that Gentiles could, could not, could not be saved. Now there's still, by the way, there's still a part of the, the Church of Christ in general that believes that there are certain people that God, they, there's nothing they could do to be saved. There's no possibility that they'll ever be saved. God is just... Now, I'm not trying to pick on that. I just want you to know that was as prevalent then. The problem is that for them, it wasn't like, I don't know who it is. They were convinced if you're not Jewish, it's you were basically created to fuel hell. Which doesn't make any sense, but anyways. Uh, and, and with that, when these Gentiles started getting saved, you can imagine them freaking out over it. So when Peter comes back, that's in Acts 10... They have to have the showdown, in essence, this sort of doctrinal meeting in Jerusalem to decide whether or not we, that's us, could be saved. And they finally decided, well, I guess they can. That was a very good meeting, and I'm very glad they concluded that. It wouldn't have mattered. We'd still be saved either way. Praise God, they didn't have to vote on it. But then Paul goes out in the ministry. Actually, this guy, Saul, becomes Paul. He goes out, and he's, he's preaching the gospel to people. And by this point, this group had raised up called the circumcision. They were Pharisees who believed in Jesus, or claimed to believe in Jesus. But by this point, they couldn't reconcile those two things. They couldn't reconcile Jesus as the Messiah. That they were okay with until they realized that he was the Messiah of the Gentiles, too. Even though Isaiah says in at least 13 different places that, that God would raise him up for the very purpose of ministering to the entire world and not just to the Jew. With that said... They have this big showdown in chapter 15. Now it isn't whether or not a, a Gentile could be saved. And you guys know what a Gentile is, right? Just anyone who's not Jewish. And so they've already concluded that. But see, what they, what they did is they reasserted and they tried to come in with a compromise. And the compromise is, well, a Gentile could be saved, but in essence he has to try to become Jewish first. He has to keep all of the laws, the Levitical laws, all of the kosher food laws. He has to keep the Sabbath law. All of these other things, which, of course, these guys didn't sign up for. They've never had. And so in chapter 15, they had to have this second meeting. Well, the way they would say it, and the group called themselves the circumcision, because if a person wasn't Jewish, they weren't circumcised. So they were saying, this has to be, you have to do this. Obviously, as a guy. But obviously, in all cases, you had to keep all of these laws. And in essence, it was emblematic of that. Well, with that said, they go there and Paul brings a group of people he had gathered on his second missionary journey. And according to the book of Galatians, chapter 2, Paul says when they went there for this meeting, that Titus, being a Greek, was not compelled to be circumcised. In other words, this, wasn't, this was a Gentile. Titus is a Gentile. That much we know from that verse. And he went down there with Paul. And when he went down there, he wasn't convinced by these guys that he needed to convert to Judaism. as sort of like, if you do that, then you can convert to Christianity. You know, imagine if that be the case. Imagine if it would be like, okay, guys, if you're going to be a Christian, what you're going to need to do is grow your hair out till you get those cool peyotes. You got to wear the black outfit. Got to put a keep on your head. Make sure you grow the beard. It's starting to sound like Daniel. Anyways, you get the idea. And that's kind of how we're introduced to him is to this idea. Now, keep that in mind. Let me plant that seed. The Titus went with Paul down there for the second showdown to say, well, what do we attach to their salvation? And they're like, nothing, really. It's like, look at, stay away from idols, keep away from things strangled, which by the way was an idolic practice, and keep away from sexual immorality. It's kind of a duh, but none of that was required for their salvation. It's like, if you're going to be a Christian, and since you've come from this idol-worshipping background, 
well, you need to forsake that stuff. And so they got that, and Paul was happy to bring that back. But there was one guy, Titus, who was like, I'm not convinced, no matter how much, how hard they try, I'm more than happy to be a Gentile believer. I don't need to be a Messianic believer. You know, this Jewish thing. Now, that's going to become important as we look at this. Now, uh, in 2 Corinthians, what we do realize is that Paul, remember, he had written this letter to the Corinthians, and they freaked out. And now he's concerned that they don't even care because they've really questioned whether Paul's even called to write a letter like that. And who does he send to check up on him? He sends Titus. And what that tells me is he really trusts Titus. And I kind of get the idea that Titus is a pretty no-nonsense kind of... He's just not easily swayed. Which is interesting, because the guy's name, Titus, pardon me for saying it this way, you'd say Titus, means nurse, like to nurse. It makes, and that's why he says that. So... He sends him to check up on the Corinthians. He comes back. Paul expected to meet him at Troas, but he didn't. Then he winds up in Macedonia. That's the area of Philippi and Thessalonica. And he meets him there, and, and Titus brings him the news. Hey, by the way, they actually do think fondly of you. And he's like, oh, praise God. And that's kind of the idea. And he goes, well, I want to send you back there then. Because remember, a year ago, they promised they would make a collection for the church that's in famine in Judea. Titus, I need you to go back there and get it. And he tells him that, by the way, in Second Corinthians as well. And what that tells me is it appears as if Titus was one of the guys he really trusted to get her done. It's kind of a no-nonsense, not going to be swayed just because a group of people have some kind of argument. He's kind of a no-nonsense kind of guy, which is even more startling when we got through Second Timothy, because it seems like he kind of bailed and went to Croatia, to Dalmatia is the term we saw there. Now, I don't know what took place. Now, again, we can't say that he actually abandoned Paul to do it, but in the, the theme of that sentence, that's what it says. But here, he's now in this place. Now, Paul, I remind you, was arrested in 60 AD in Rome, was on house arrest for two years, and then released. After he was released, he was a, there was a five-year gap. We don't know anything about that time other than perhaps the book of Titus. And the reason I say that is, is it's clearly after his first arrest... Now, Paul will be rearrested in 66 AD, and it's then that he'll write 2 Timothy, his last letter, and then he'll be executed, he'll be murdered. In between that time, Paul says something really interesting to Titus at the beginning of this book. He'll actually say, for this reason I left you in Crete. Now, the reason I say that is, is for Paul to leave him in Crete, and we'll develop that word a little later, it means that he had to be there with him. Now, we had one situation where Paul had been in Crete prior to this point, and that was when Paul was on his way to Rome in the beginning, uh, on his way to Rome to be arrested. And if you remember, it was the place called Fair Havens, where Paul would winter and well, he wanted to, and the people were like, no, it seems like it's a nice day, let's go, and let's go for it, and they head into a hurricane, and Paul's like, I don't really think we should do this. Well, that place was Crete. We don't read that a church was built there or anything at that time, but somewhere down the line, maybe while Paul was there, maybe one was. We just don't have it recorded. We don't, obviously, again, since that's the book of Acts, we don't have Titus mentioned in that as well. Uh, we do know that back in Acts chapter 2, when people are hearing everyone speak their own languages, people from Crete recognized there. So people from Crete were there as well. Now, let me develop Crete for just a moment. 
And I have a little quiz here just to see how savvy you are on the on islands in the world. Crete is, if we're going to be honest, the fifth largest island in the Mediterranean. Now, I believe you can come up with the first four. Give it a shot. Tell me what you come up with. What's the largest one? Largest in size? Yeah, the largest in size. No, but that is actually one of the four. Sicily is the largest island in the Mediterranean, and you would think every Italian would know that. But not every Italian. Okay, so we have Cyprus, we have Sicily, we have two more. Sardinia is right. Yay, there's the other Italian one. And one more. Corsica is correct. Did you say it, Dad, or did Hugo actually? Yeah, go on. Yeah, because it's French and kind of not French. So, Sicily, and then Sardinia, and then Cyprus, and then Corsica, and then Crete. It's the fifth largest. To give you an idea, it is it is about 140 miles long from one side to the other, and roughly 35 miles wide. To give you an idea. Homer, when he wrote about it, said it was the island of a hundred cities. That says something. Uh, if we were here, they would probably she might be able to give you the answer. To this in the center of this island is a mount called Mount Ida or Ida. It is eight thousand one hundred and ninety three feet tall. But the Greeks held that mount Ida very well. They held it as great, with great honor. Does anyone know any Greek mythology why that place would be so important to them? Sorry. Oh, give it a try. You can't leave. Yes! It is the birthplace of Zeus, according to them. That was well done. And all the. Now, see how smart that girl is? I married well. It is also rumored that the descendants that are there are from the Kaftorim. Now, you'd have to be a real Bible, a deep Bible student for that. Does anyone know who the Kaftorim are? Who comes from the Kaftorim? The Philistines, Genesis chapter 10, tells us that the Kaftarim are, in essence, the ancestors of the Philistines. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 14, Ezekiel 25, verse 16, Zechariah 2, 5. The Philistines are described as the Cherethites, and often people translate Cherethites as Cretans, for what it's worth. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 2, Jeremiah 4, and Amos 9 also make mention of that. All of that to say this. Even historians like Tacitus believe that Crete was the father of the, those that call themselves Philistines. Now, do you know what a person that actually tries to draw from the word Philistine, what they would call themselves today? Palestinian. That's where that word comes from, for what it's worth. Which, by the way, we can actually thank England for that, for what it's worth. Because it was kind of a horrible slam to the Israelis to call the land Palestinas when the land was actually allotted to English rule, by the way, for a period of time. Uh, with that in mind, interesting, because what it means actually is foreigner. That's what, uh, what Philistine means, foreigner. Does anyone know what Hebrew means? One from beyond. Don't you find it interesting? You've got people called foreigners and people called one from beyond arguing over the same property of land. Unless God were to grant it, neither one of them could pay proper claim to it, if you think about it, for what it's worth. Now, 
Are you with me so far? Now, all of that to say, by the way, you have a group of people that are there that are, in essence, kind of already kind of known for being of questionable character, uh, as the Philistines were, by the way. Now, culturally, and this, is, comes, this becomes really important in regards to this, culturally, one thing we discover in London, because we're such a melting pot of cultures, is there is this place between understanding a culture and understanding and being a racist. And they're very different things. And the reason I say that is certain cultures promote certain things that are antisocial behavior. For instance, there are certain cultures, for instance, where a man has no responsibility to be a father. We're familiar with some of those cultures. Where a man, in essence, people's children from several, lives, several women, which, none of which he marries, and it's not only culturally accepted, it's kind of culturally normal. There, is in many, there are several places in the world to steal is actually considered culturally acceptable. In other words, this is common. There are places in Africa where stealing isn't even against the law. It just is what happens there. It's part of the survival mentality. There are other places where obviously the view on women is going to be completely belittling. And it, of course, they're viewed in certain ways. That comes with the culture. And being aware of those cultures really does help you understand why of a group of people really want to take that culture into this, this community, how dangerous that could be. Now, the reason I say that is, is that Crete had a culture as well. And the culture that Crete had was known for two things. One, they were fantastic sailors. But with that, if you imagine, many pirates are fantastic sailors. And the reason I say that is, if you kind of got pirates of the Caribbean, that's kind of the idea of what they were, what they were known for. They were known for being inscrupulous. They were known for more than anything, their tall tales. They were known for being liars. And that was culturally accepted. If you made up a story, imagine if a sailor comes back from his, you know, from his adventures, which really was no adventure at all. They just were happy to come back alive with a few fish. But somewhere down the line, they came back and told these crazy stories about the fish that got away. In certain cultures, that's just expected and accepted. And the reason I say that is they were known as untrustworthy, lying, but brave soldiers. Or sa sailors, I'm sorry. Now, one of the most famous poets that came from them was a guy named Epimenides. Now, Epimenides, it's really important to know about this guy because he's actually quoted in Titus. And Epimenides actually throws out what's called a paradox, something that couldn't possibly make sense in and of itself. He was actually born in a place called Gnosis, like to know Gnosis, and, which is on Crete. And he says, Cretans are always liars. Now, if he's from Crete, that can't possibly be right. Because he would be telling you the truth to say that. And if they are always lying, how could he tell you the truth? Does that, I mean, I don't mean to blow your mind, but you get it. But what happened is, that was the way that he would start a lot of his statements. And one of the statements he made, it was said of him, was, and he would end it with the same thing. He would say the story was that his father sent him to go look for some sheep. His father's sheep. And he went to go look in the field for the sheep. But it got really hot at about noon, as it tends to. And in Grecian culture, it makes sense. That what he went then is he went into a cave to take a nap. Well, that was fine, except that he napped for about 57 years. 
Well, that must be rough for dad. He was a little late for dinner. And then he would always end it with this. Now, we would say it this way. True story. You know, say, oh, this was a situation. True story. And he would say, this is a trustworthy or this is an honest or this is a true story. This is a true testimony. Or he would say, this testimony is true. That was the phrase he would end every one of these, lie, these big stories with, if, that's, if that makes sense. And as a poet, he was more than just the kind of poet that was like, roses are red, violets are blue. He would write these epic poems that were stories, was the idea. Now, and you could buy that for people like Livy, for what it's worth, Callimachus, Plutarch, the, uh, and Polybius, who were historians, would all speak about, as a matter of fact, to cretinize someone was to turn them into a liar. And they said that there was this proverbial infamous three C's, Cappadocia, Crete, and Cilicia. In other words, stay out of these neighborhoods and you're going to be okay, because they're thieves, murderers, and liars. That's the idea. Well, with that in mind, let me tell you about the church. And again, I'm just prepping us for it. This is the community. So I can't even think, and it's probably better I can't, of a community that's known for its lying. No, I mean, there's certainly, I mean, we could go Washington, D.C. Is that the first place you thought? You know, yeah. I mean, a place where politics reigns because usually, you know, one side says, oh, we came up with this recording 10 years ago and it's going to take you down. Ha, 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 we found that. And this guy comes up with something on this side. And they're like, how dare you come up with this? Well, you can, I mean, it's crazy how this all works. But in the end of it all, that's the problem with politics is it's, you know, there's, there's, it's even hard to tell who's lying anymore. Uh, to be honest, it's hard to tell if anything's true. Well, the reason I say that is that's where this church is planted. And when this church is planted, if that wasn't bad enough in an, on a kind of a anything goes kind of mindset, well, the church is being assaulted on three fronts. What you have, think of it this way, is that the Greeks were huge on their philosophy. And the Greek philosophers were trying to influence and have at this point influenced the church in Crete. Now, according to, this, to the book of Acts, when Paul winds up in Athens in Acts 17, it tells us that the philosophers on Mars Hill did nothing but to say and to hear the latest thing. And I think that's the best definition for philosophy there is. You do nothing, you just talk. It's all talk, no action. And, that, and by the way, I want you to know, I have a minor in philosophy, so it isn't like I've never been there. You know, I, I, anyways, I could tell you goofy stories, but it doesn't matter. The point is, is that, the, and by the way, we're in a very Greek-influenced world. There are no absolutes in a Greek mind. In other words, don't you dare. So everything has this sliding scale, including morality and including what's considered right and wrong. How dare you tell me, hey, could be right and wrong for you and that's cool. Just don't you dare inflict that on me and we're cool. And because in the end of it all, it's not going to be about action. It's just going to be about awareness. You know, those kind of words. And we just want you to be aware. But we don't expect any action to take place. And you know how that filtered into the church? It filtered into the church by the church has receded from a place of action to a place of conversation. So anytime you're going to see, by the way, and we're going to find it to be real common in this, that Paul's going to address that issue. By the way, because we are in a Greek-influenced culture, do you see how easy it is for the church to do nothing but talk? Then you have the Romans. And the Romans, I remind you, in essence, built their house on top of the foundation of the Greeks. 
And they had their scientists. They had their experts. And the way that their experts worked is that they kind of decided, they created their own environment and their own consortium of quote-unquote educated people because what the Romans did is they built their universities and all of their things that came from the Greeks. And so they had their school of thought and that was now considered definitive truth. What the Romans did in essence is they took that crazy plane of no absolutes and tried to land it and they landed it in their own choice of ideas and ideals. So what they said was, this is a truth now. Our scientists have said this. Our experts say this. Our educated men with all of their degrees have come up and said, this is true. So the issue was truth. Now, I remind you, in regards to the Greeks, the issue was action. But with the Romans, the issue was truth. And because of that, the church was bowing to their their determined set of what they said was true so what they were doing is they were trying to in other words you take one of the two of those as a basis for truth and you either see whether it fits or not and what happened is the church took this step over to say these experts now are the truth and scripture has to bend to that does that make sense Mm -hmm. and by the way the same thing happens today as well here i and and i'm I'm just going to go right at the throat of it Revolution drives me mad. And the reason is because if you... And by the way, did we just close that door? We want the kids to have fun and us to actually enjoy the fact they're having fun. Thank you. (laughs) As a pastor with a passion for you to love the Word of God, I want you to believe, because you should, because it's true, that you could read the Bible and get the truth from it without anyone, including me, trying to tell you. Now, that doesn't mean you'll get everything from it. And by the way, the same for me. But when you read the first two chapters, of, well, the first chapter of Scripture, it's interesting that that's what's gone after is the first chapter of the Bible. And people go, well, I know it says a day. And he says it was a night and a day. So, you know, and God can't say it any other way than it's there. And the point is, if you just read that without any quote-unquote expert from the world interfering or me interfering, if you just sat alone with the Bible with no other information and you read the first chapter, I guarantee we would all come to the same conclusion. And then what happened is there were experts. Now, you know, that are the world set up their little place, their helipad, which everyone sort of, everything has to land in. And the reason I say that is this. In the end, one of the two of these has to be the basis for absolute truth for which then the other one has at best to bend or if it doesn't reconcile, needs to be disqualified. And of course, the problem is I wasn't raised a Christian. So I was already raised on this side. So what happens is when I start to read the scripture, I naturally bend it at first. But I realized that this was messed up before that point. So I went, all right, I need scripture for what it clearly says. Then I'm going to actually start to get back to seeing what, it, what reconciles to it or not. But that was the problem in the church here, is that, so you got, so with the Greek influence, they were doing nothing. So he's going to go, you need to get busy. With the Roman influence, now they were kind of going, what's really truth anyways? We have our own idea about truth. And if the Bible isn't really reconciled to that, well, then the Bible's probably the problem. They'll do that in regards to issues of sexuality, issues of gender identity. And they'll go, well, this is what scripture says. Yeah, but it's irrelevant to our culture. Well, you know what that says? As that culture's what you're holding on to, and now this, what, we'll see whether it's relevant. I would say that the culture is irrelevant to Scripture 
Because the, the culture needs to be reconciled, not the scripture. That's which one do you stand in? Does that make sense? So they were getting, you know, they were getting side-smacked by the philosophers of, of the Greek mindset. They were, in essence, then getting smacked around by the scientists of the Romans. Uh, and, and then you have the Jewish legalists that were influencing the church now, telling them that you do the commandments first, and then God responds. And again, the whole mindset of a legalist mindset is, the whole basis of it is, you do and God responds, versus God does and you respond. Which, by the way, is unique to Christianity. And we've watched now, as we've seen things even recently, where we've seen uh, historical accounts of different things, where it's like they keep going back to this idea that you're responsible to do all this stuff, and then maybe God will respond if you do it. So we have all three of these things happening. So the, here's the interesting part, that the Cretan church was getting smacked from all sides, except for one, the sin-crazy, unsaved world in front of them. It doesn't say anywhere in here, well, it does talk about leaving ungodliness. So we'll talk about that. But for the most part, the primary focal point isn't this full frontal assault by the lost world, but by these other people who actually claim to be in the camp with them. Because the difference is, going right straight at you, you know that that's a challenge. You know that that's a competition. You know that that is now a fight. But the things on the side, you can kind of veer off and forget you're not on the road like you should be. And it happens with every one of us if we're not careful. Now, Paul went after all three of these. If the Jewish sect was gaining traction... I'd like you to consider this, and we're going to see that's the big thing. If the Jewish sect was gaining traction on their influence to Judaize the Cretan church, who would you send to that church? How about the guy that wouldn't bend back in Acts 15? He's like, I'm not getting circumcised. I don't buy this. Wouldn't he be the right guy to send? Your no-nonsense guy? Interesting. Because this guy's very different from Timothy. Remember how many times Paul has to tell Timothy, stop being afraid, man. Stir up the gift. Come on now. What Paul has to tell this guy is, hey, stop trying to do it yourself. Pull in some elders, man. There's a reason I, I called you to do this. And what you find is a no-nonsense, do-it kind of guy has a problem delegating. Well, that's that's going to be a problem. In Titus 1.5, it says, for this reason I left you. In Crete. And the word there is, by the way, katalaipo. And katalaipo literally means to leave behind. To leave behind means you need to be there. And he says, in essence, wait. Raise up your elders, and we'll see that here in a moment. And until the church is sustainable, and, and there will be a replacement coming. Now, Paul is writing from Nicopolis. By the way, that is the west, western, central western coast of Greece at this moment. So hear me in this. And now I'm almost done so that we can take our break and then we'll go straight to the text. Because of the Greek influence. Do you remember what the Greek influence was basically challenging them to do? Excellent. It was challenging them to do nothing. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Because of that, He'll use the term good works. As a matter of fact, between 1 Timothy and Titus, the term is used more than half of the times in the entire Bible in those two books. 
to the pastors. The term what is good will be mentioned in 1 8, 1 16, 2 3, 2 7, 2 14, 3 1, 3 8, and 3 14. That's an important thing. Make sure that they do what is good. Teaching what is good. And make sure that what they do actually keeps them from good work. So when we read through it, I'm going to put a challenge out to you. So when you see him, tell them, make sure that they're doing good things. Does that make sense? I want you to uh, just want, see if you can come up with and just say Greek. In other words, you know that that's fighting the Greek mindset. Does that make sense? Every time we come across it in Scripture, just pop out that word Greek. You with me so far? Because Paul is fighting the Roman influence, what was the Roman influence? Excellent. Bending truth. The elders now are propelled as the experts. Not a group of guys on the camp over here that have been to school somewhere by other guys who hate God. Now they're the experts. He goes, you need to let the elders be the ones who've walked with God for a while, who are confident in the truth of God's scripture, so they can say, let me say, I know what it's like to walk in scripture. So they're at that place in their life where they can, they can go, you know what, that doesn't reconcile. And so the, obviously the primary issue is going to be the truth. So every time you see the, you know, an emphasis on truth, we're going back to fighting the Roman influence. Does that make sense? So you'll say Roman. So every time he's like, get busy, we would say Greek. Every time he's like, hey, the real truth, we know that that's Roman. Does that make sense? So you didn't realize this was audience participation, so to speak. Jewish influence. Interestingly enough, in this, in this book, by the way, the term Our Savior is mentioned more than half of the times in Scripture. That tells me something, the term Our Savior. Because if Jesus is our Savior, He is the one who did the work, not we do the work. That makes sense. As a matter of fact, the term Our Savior in the pastoral letters is actually... 92% of the time in Scripture will be actually just in the pastoral letters. That tells me something fundamentally important. And one of the strongest statements of Jesus being God is in this book. When he says, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, hear me on this quick thing. There's a rule called the Granville Sharp Rule. What the Granville Sharp rule is, and this probably only makes sense to Suzanne unless you're a grammarian, is that the article noun construction, when placed together, takes a second noun and it must be married to the first. In other words, it's the same. When he says God, noun, Savior, those two things by Granville Sharp rule have to be the same person. And thus, by Granville Sharp rule, God and Savior Jesus Christ, Jesus has to be both God and Savior in that verse. Now, forgive me, if you will. Um, and that is the case when, by the way, neither is impersonal, but neither is plural, or neither is a proper name. God, Savior. Neither is plural, neither is impersonal, and neither is a proper name. Now, here's the basic overview of the book, and I'll go back to this when we after our break, because this is the last thing. Chapter 1, because the whole thing is going to focus then on these elders. Remember, Presbyteros. Chapter 1, elders and the battle they must fight. Chapter 2, elders and the nurturing they must give. And then chapter 3, elders and the example they must be. I'll say that one more time. 
Chapter 1, elders in the battle they must fight. Chapter 2, elders and the nurturing they must give. In other words, chapter 1, how the elders have to fight those that are trying to come in that shouldn't. And chapter 2, how they're supposed to minister to those who are inside. And then 3, how we're to be an example in the world around us. Now, you might think, I'm not a mature Christian. Well, then guess what? You get to read this knowing this is what God would like you to become. How great is that? If you think you are a mature Christian, well, you can compare and take a look at this yourself. Now, I've taken the liberty, by the way, and we're going to see here in a moment, there's going to be lists of qualifications for everything. By the way, here, we're not going to see the emphasis on deacons, but rather on elders, elders and overseers. And I've listed for the first Timothy texts and the Titus texts, every word that's listed in qualifications and their definitions. And I've given you that. I've also, for what it's worth, given you what we see elders doing in heaven. And why is it important? Remember when Jesus prayed, may your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Apparently it's done right in heaven. So whatever elders are doing in heaven, I would like to think is what we could learn that elders should be doing here. And so you have that as well listed. So you can take those things in your own personal study time. By the way, it's what transformed me into recognizing the responsibilities of an elder. Now, having said all of that, and we did that in 45 minutes. Let me ask you, is there any questions in regards to our simple, you know, obviously laying the ground rules so that we can read straight through it? I've stupefied you, haven't I? You know what you need? Some cookies and brownies. Or whatever. All right. Well, pray with me, would you? God, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful text. I want to thank you, Lord, for what we have yet to learn in it. And I pray, Lord, that every one of us would grow to become mature like you call us to. So we commit this to you, Lord, as we take this 15-minute break. Do perfect work in our hearts, I pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Okay, so quick quiz. There were three major influences attacking the church. The Greeks were influencing with their philosophy. What is that challenging the church to do there? Nothing. Beautiful. Beautiful in the sense that you understood that. <laughs> Not beautiful. And by the way, doesn't the church sort of naturally do nothing unless it's like lighting a fire? Yeah, anyways. Uh, then we have the Roman influence. What is the Roman influence really attacking? Truth. Truth. Okay, how about the Jewish influence? What did you know? Yeah, the law. Excellent. The law, the commandments. And to be honest... Being saved and redeemed by grace. Obviously, grace would be the issue in that. Now, three chapters. The first chapter, again, is the elders and the battle they must fight. The second chapter, the elders and the nurturing they must give. And third chapter, on the example, we all must be then. You ready to go around? Don't forget, you've got three words to say. you got Greek, Roman, or Jewish. Well, anytime you see it addressing those, oh, for Jews, obviously when you see anytime the effect of God our Savior, when you see the issue of, of, of God doing the saving, God being the Redeemer, that kind of thing, obviously it'll be, it's an assault on the idea that, you know, we can't save ourselves. All right, here we go. We're reading in the round. Paul, a bondservant of God 
and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Romans. Ah, oh, nice job. See me after class. Uh, don't worry. Don't let the rest. Don't let that scare the rest of you. Uh, I love the fact that chapter, verse two. By the way, he's going to directly address the Cretan culture. In hope of eternal life, which God cannot lie promised before time began. To get that in there. Uh, Excellent. I like it. You did it. That's really awesome. But having used my life as his historic through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Nice. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Yes, nice. Jewish. We'll say Jewish because I don't want it to make it sound like we're picking on the Jews. <laughs> you know that again, that traditional Jewish influence there. Um, did you notice, by the way, again, you know, he always talks about grace and peace, grace and peace, but the pastorals always seem to have grace, and mercy, and peace. Oh boy, do we need it! And by the way, I like to remind you, you know, when you ask for grace, you're asking for something you don't deserve. But when you're asking for mercy, you're usually in a position of being in the wrong. I'm interesting that that would be something important. For them. Okay. For this reason, I love Jean Crete, that you should study in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I command you. Now, the word, by the way, epidiortho. Does anyone know what the word ortho means? Excellent. Like an orthodontist. What does he do? He tries to make your teeth. Straight. What does the word epi mean? Does anyone remember? Upon. How about dia? Like diameter. Means through. Because remember the diameter is through the circle. Epi means on. Dia or di means through. Ortho means straight. Upon and through straight. That's the term here for set in order. In other words, it needs to be put straight through and through. Which means if you have to put something straight, what condition is it in at the moment? It's bent. It's crooked. And it says, and of course, you have to do that with the things that are lacking. Because there's things that are lacking, it's crooked. And notice he says appoint elders, not pastors, not even overseers. Though there'll be an inference that that's where every elder should go was to that position in some, excuse me, degree. But there should be a lot more elders than there should be just sort of a guy that's sort of the pastor, so to speak. And I want them all, he's like, Titus, you're trying to do this alone? Buddy, you need to raise up mature people and get them busy. Okay. Let's start talking about it. And again, I won't develop a lot of the terms that are on here because you have a paper with every one of them on there. So, verse 6. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. I do have to develop too. Self-willed, orthodes, oth like autos means self. 
like anything autocratic, that kind of idea. Autades means self-pleasing, the term for self-willed. Isn't self-willed just like you're a strong-willed child? It means you're, you're living to serve yourself. That's the idea. Quick-tempered, or gilas means soon, angry. But the term not given to wine, we saw that with First Timothy. Again, the word paroinas. Remember what para means? It's a prefix which means beside, like paragraph, besides, um, or near. Oinas, meaning wine. It's the Greek word for wine. So paroinas literally means not, in this case, not near or beside the wine. A person who is going to oversee should not be near the wine. Not violence a striker, greedy for money, a shameful gain. Hospitable, I remind you, for lexenos means to befriend strangers. I love that term, by the way. All right, and notice again, oh yeah, that's mine. Verse 8, but hospitable, Felixenas. A lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. Holding fast the faithful word, as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, by the way, sound doctrine, if you were to point that in one of those three camps, which one would you put sound doctrine in? Greek, Romans, or Jewish? Romans, excellent. Sound doctrine means it is sound, it is clear and true. The word exhort, by the way, doesn't just mean, hey, do this. It's literally, literally the word parakaleho. Maybe that should sound familiar. The word for comforter or counselor that we see with the Holy Spirit, mentioned in John 14, same word here. Verse 11, or 10, I'm sorry. For there are many insubordinates, both idle talkers, talkers and uh, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Let you point out some group right there, right? The Jewish, the, Jewish, the circumcision. Yeah. Idle talkers, by the way, the word means literally empty reason. Metaiologos. Uh, Metai is the idea of empty, valueless, or you know, sort of full of holes or full of air. Uh, and then logos, your logic, your reasoning. And deceivers, interesting enough, literally means a mind deluder. So, okay. Whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest, dishonest gain. Does anyone know what the word subvert means? I kind of read it and go, well, it sounds like an English word that's common. I should probably just know it. It sounds like under the... Yeah, I mean, like avert means to turn away, sub means underneath. The word, by the way, is the word anatrepo. And anatrepo literally means to turn up. We might say it this way, to flip something upside down. And that's what, in other words, it's like they go into households and they flip the whole thing upside down. That's what they're doing. One of them, a professor of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, basic gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sown in the, in the faith. Now remember, no, I, I will say, this is a hard one, right? But then we're back to that point where it's the same guy, Pimenides, who's made this testimony. And remember how he ended everything with, this testimony is true. The way that it's been translated in front of us here is as if that's a statement Paul is making. But I would be more prone to say that since that was the common thing that Epimenides would say, he's going, the whole statement is, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, this testimony is true. And he goes, obviously, regardless of the case, he goes, well, if they're willing to admit that, well, then you should, you need to know this is not a culture you want to be a part of. 
Not giving heed to Jewish fable and commandment of men who would turn from the truth. Do you get both in that? Jewish and what else? Roman, Roman right? <laughs> Turning from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled, my Aino, and means contaminated or polluted, and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. The word disqualified, adokimos, means failed the test. In Greek. In Greek. Yeah, excellent. And there's the Greek. But as for you, speak the things we shall profit for sound doctrine. And what's that? Roman. Roman. That the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. Okay, now hold on. I just want to point out. He's like, look it. Now this is what I want you to speak, Titus. I mean, in our first chapter, what he told us says, look at what you have as a challenge. You have these people that are coming at you from these different directions. And so you need to be ready for this because this is not, I mean, this isn't going to be a cakewalk for you. Because the culture you live in is contrary to your walk, you need to be aware of that. And people trying to drag that culture in, rebuke them for it. It is not. It doesn't belong in the church. It is clearly an ungodly culture. And if it's an ungodly culture, it doesn't belong in the church under the guise of we need to be relevant. Well, the problem again is the church needs to bend to become relevant to the culture versus the culture needs to bend to become relevant to the church. So, and he's, he's going, look at, there are these people and they're teaching what they shouldn't. They're taking people and they're, and they're flipping households completely upside down. Titus, you need to recognize this is a fight, man. This is going to be a fight. So, therefore, you know what you need to do? Call in for backup. If you've got a fight, do what any intelligent person would do, and that is don't go alone. So, who do you need to bring in? Mature men and mature women. Notice in chapter 2, both are necessary. Presbyteros, presbyteros. Remember, in both terms, again, mature man, mature women. And notice, by the way, now the responsibility we have as we mature to those that are younger in the faith. By the way, if you've walked with Jesus for two years and you've walked with Scripture with us, you are more mature than most people out there that have walked with Jesus for a decade but haven't been in the Word at all. They may have experiences, they may know church culture, but if you know the truth, and it tells us in Ephesians 4, and I challenge you to check it, it tells us that the people who are mature are those who, by reason of use, know how to exercise the scriptures and their own senses to decipher right and wrong. They know how to take what they see around them and apply it to scripture. And he goes, that you should expect with somebody who's growing and mature in, this, in the Lord. And that they speak the truth in love, and they grow to a sense of unity in Christ. With him being the head. You'll never grow together if you're not growing together under Christ as the headship. That's the point. So, back in our text. The older, I'm sorry, the older men. Notice, by the way, the term sober keeps coming up. Did you notice that? That's just really important that the Holy Spirit keeps saying, look at When you grow older, you actually get more sober. By the way, the term means saved brain. So, okay, verse 3. Go ahead, Deb, say sorry. <laughs> the other women likewise that they've been uh, that they be reverent in behavior, no 
not slanderers, not given too much wine, teacher of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Okay, now, I just have to point this out. You know that there are different Greek words for love. There's the word storge, which speaks about a familial love. Not the word used here. There's the word eras, which is an erotic, it's a selfish love. There's the word Philadelphia, like remember when it says philoxenos, the word for hospitality, befriending strangers, and it's a friendship love, how to be a friend. And then there's the word agape, the word that's used exclusively, for instance, about God loving us, that it isn't like he just wanted to be our friend, and it wasn't obviously weird and erotic, it was that he is a completely selfless, like eras is selfish, phileo is a mutual, and agape is a completely selfless. Does that make sense? Which word do you think it is when it tells them that they admonish young women to love their husbands and love their children? That's what I would have thought. When I first read it, that's exactly what I thought. But it's not. It's actually the word phileo. And I get it. It took me a while to go in prayer, and I'm like, what? And it's like, you know what women need to learn from older women? is how to be their husband's friend. Because you know what the opposite of that is? An enemy. And a lot of, especially in a culture where the focus is on you and everything revolves around you, everyone that does anything is a competition to you. So what happens is you're in a house with somebody that if something blesses them, it should bless you because you're one, but instead it becomes competition. I am so thankful that that's not where my wife's ever been. I'm so thankful for that. But it's like, as you get older, don't, I mean, imagine it's easier, pardon me for saying this, it would be easier for you guys to imagine than it would be for us, because that was, you know, I mean, you guys could actually be our children and it wouldn't be scandalous. Uh, but imagine what it would be like when you were first married, how amazing it would be, well, that wasn't that long ago, was it? Um, how amazing it would be to find couples where the wife's really a friend to her husband. By the way, you can't teach that at a pulpit. You have to teach that by example. There's no way you could just have a tea and, and discuss it without watching somebody really be a friend to their husband and be a friend to their children. And he goes, look at one of the things that I want older women doing is teaching the young women, man, be your husband's friend. How cool is that? And by the way, I'm actually really thankful. Of all the people to tell us that, it's Paul. Well, verse 5, to be, that's me, right? Um, but, um, to be discreet, oh, excuse me, just, homemaker, good, obedient to their own husband, that the word of God may not be blasphemy. Um, okay, so what's in the balance here? So what if a older women don't do this? If they don't, if they don't teach, if they're not reverent, which means that they're, you know, that they give great honor and value the behavior... If they're slanders, by the way, the same word that's used for devil, uh, that they're actually, in essence, that they're drunk and they aren't teaching people good things. Instead, you know, they're just kind of wasting their time and they're not showing others how to become friends to their husband and children. They're not chaste or discreet. They're not, by the way, the ones, uh, the word for housemakers, the one in other words, like the house is supposed to be theirs to run in that sense. Good obedience. What would be the what, if they don't do that? What's going to happen? What would be the fruit of that? Blasphemy. Yeah, and what gets blasphemed? God. The word of God. The word of God. 
See, inherently, people, even out there in the world, look and go, isn't that what the Bible teaches? And there are a lot of gals out there, even Christian women, who would be like, nah, maybe the Bible says that, but now, you know what that tells the world? Well, there are parts of Scripture that clearly don't pertain even to Christians anymore. Because if that's what the Bible says, and gals are like, whatever, then how are they going to think that the Word of God is going to be, and it says the Word of God will be basically considered not important at all. Because that's how dangerous this is. And like, hey, this... And you realize, if I can put it in a simple sense about this, if a gal that is married, an older woman, is content, she will put, remember the first word was reverent in her behavior? She'll put a price on her time, on her body, on her family, on her home. Those things will be important to her because she's content and she's seeking the Lord. She's content in Christ. And if she is that, she won't be a slanderer because she'll actually put a value on her friendships. She won't be drunk all the time because she puts a value on her, on her time. She's a teacher of good things. She puts a value on her family so she can actually show people how to be friends with her family. Because she values her own privacy. She'll be discreet. She values her own home so she'll be a homemaker and good. And she values her relationship with her husband so she'll be in the position where she needs to be with him. And when she's actually there, people are like, maybe this word of God thing, there's a, maybe, maybe there's something behind that. By the way, that's, pardon me for saying, that's on the girl's shoulders. Now, y'all single, you're safe for some of that, but you're going to get older sooner or later, and it's still going to be the case. And by the way, I always find that there's something missing. You get older, hey, we're in a culture that when you get old, you're obsolete. You know, in L.A., I remember, it's like they would tell you, and one thing you just don't get, don't you dare get old. And it's because when you get old, you're irrelevant to your culture and you're like, oh, you're just one of those. And in God's culture, an older person's to be respected. And he goes, man, if you drag in Crete culture into your church, you're not going to want anything to do with old people. And the old people are going to go, they're not going to want anything to do with me anyways, because that's what they see in the world. Imagine what it would be like you take people who are really good examples of following the Lord and them going, and you're going, hey, how, show me how to walk with Jesus like you do and what you could learn from that. That would be a healthy church. Well, verse 6, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded as if you didn't get enough of that sober thing. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. And doctrine showing integrity, reverence, and correctability. By the way, verse 7, showing yourself as a pattern of good works. Oh, Greek. Greek. Remember that? And doctrine showing integrity. Roman. Roman. Beautiful. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of So if we do this, you know what's in the balance? The shame and emptying of the ammunition of the opposition. Exhort bond servants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well pleasing in all things, not answering back. Not pilfering, but showing what good fidelity. That they may adore the doctrine of God our Savior and all things. Jewish, beautiful God our Savior. Salvation has appeared to all men. Jewish. 
teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jewish. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people, those for good works. Speak these things, exhort. Okay, hold on. Before you get there, Jewish and in Greek. Did you get that? Okay. Thank you. By the way, I love this. Let me just say this. And I'm sorry, Anna. God's grace was manifest to everyone. These are some of my favorite verses in this. And you know what we learn from that? We learn to leave ungodliness, to leave literally worldly cravings, to live soberly, live righteously, live godly, and to look for Jesus' return. Leave, leave, live, 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 look. Leave ungodliness, leave worldly cravings, live soberly, live righteously, live godly, and look for Jesus' return. That's what God's grace tells us. Okay, verse 15. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. Roman. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Greek. Greek. By the way, both Timothy and Titus were told the same thing. We see it here in verse 15. Let no one despise you. Remember with Timothy, he says, let no one despise you because you're young. How sad is that? Well, you get that. And he says, in either case, don't let people despise you. But what if they want to despise you regardless? Well, do what you can. Okay, chapter 3. So remind them to be subject, be ready for every good work. Be careful of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward man appear. Jewish. Not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Jewish. Through the washing of generation, or regeneration, and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Jewish. And that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Jewish. Justified by his grace. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Do you guys get that? Yeah, be careful to maintain good works. Don't let the church just turn into a philosophy. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogy. Contention and striving about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Roman, did you get that? This is what they do instead. The church is a nasty habit of settling into distracting words instead of edifying works. So, what do you do with a person that's doing that in your church when they're actually turning it into a philosophy instead of an action or trying to bring in this relativistic mindset on truth? Or trying to get you caught into some legal trip where everything's about you doing stuff and God has to respond to it. 
what he tells us in verse 10. Reject a, de a divisive man after the first and second ab admonition. Can you say that one more time? Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. When do you do it? When do you reject him? After the first and second admonition. Beautiful. What does that mean? Well, you warn him, and then you warn him again. That's your first and second admonition. First time, in, you know, let me just say this. When we approach somebody that's creating trouble like that, we talk about correct, then rebuke. When you correct someone, you are, in essence, informing them out of ignorance. Step Well, first step one, you always pray. But the first thing is, perhaps you're unaware of this, but this is actually against Scripture. And I'd like to inform you. You bring them to the text and you show them this is what it says. I want to inform. I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt you just don't know. That we call that correcting. Does that make sense? That's step one. So can I admonish you? Let's stop doing this. Then you do it again. And you ask them, is this a habit you can't stop? Because at this point, now we need to lay aside. Now again, this is about being divisive. This isn't just about a person having a problem with a sin and we're trying to help them out. But somebody who's creating division in the church. Now the second time you're going to look at, I have to, do, I have to go more than correct where I'm informing. I have to rebuke. And at a rebuke, I have to lay an ultimatum. This is what you need to do. We need to stop this. And if you don't, here is the warning. This is the response. Is you're going to be rejected from this point on. Does that make sense? So we, we instruct. Then we rebuke. Then we reject. That's what he tells us here. Now, again, that's not just a person struggling with sin. It's a difference. The question is, will they admit it's wrong? A divisive person almost always doesn't admit it's wrong. They'll be like, well, maybe, but, but you don't understand. This is so important. It's important that everybody understand where this doctrinal position I'm coming from is. It's like, no, actually, you're creating division in the church, bro, and I've got to show you what Scripture says about that. So I give you a first admonition. I give you a second admonition. You need to know on the second one, from this point on, you will be rejected if you go from this. Does that make sense? Does anyone want to do this verse? Does anyone think this will be fun? Trust me, it's not fun. And you know when you do it, you are the bad guy. But you know the only person you're not the bad guy to? Because they have a habit, usually when you do something like this, they have a habit of gathering a group of people that are willing to listen to their divisive ways and make you the bad guy with them. The one thing they have in common now is you are the jerk. But you know the one person that isn't having a problem with you at that moment? God. God. Yeah, because he's like, you obeyed my scripture. You, you know, it's like, I know that's not easy, but you need to recognize that's what I told you to do, and I need you to trust me in that. And I'm like, well, it doesn't feel good. God's like, I didn't say it was going to feel good. But I asked you to obey. All right, verse 11. Knowing that such a person is wrapped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I said Artemis to you, well, or Tychicus, apparently he hasn't made up his mind yet. Be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. Zenus, by the way, we wouldn't even know existed, except for this verse. But let me tell you the best part about putting Zenus in Scripture. Not that he's a lawyer. <laughs> I'll do respect. Uh, it's the fact that there are some people out there. Has anyone given you this crazy nonsense that they probably pulled off of some goofy guy's PowerPoint on uh, 
on YouTube. Jesus is actually, his name means son of Zeus or gift of Zeus. Yay, Zeus. Has anyone ever told you that? Good. Well, you just might get it by someone who actually thinks they're smart in saying that. And they'll say, you know, Jesus, Jesus must be God from Zeus or God of Zeus or gift of Zeus. And you can say, interesting, because gift of Zeus is in the Bible. Zenos means gift of Zeus. So when people say, that's how it's said in the Greek. No, it said Zenos, and it's right here. Just so you know, when they try to pull out that weirdness, here's your answer for what it's worth. This Tychicus character, by the way, notice it says that he might be sending Tychicus to them in Crete in verse 12. Does that name sound even remotely familiar to you? Good. Do you remember back in 2 Timothy when Paul talked about how all of Asia turned away from him? They abandoned him and a whole batch of other people, including Demas. And he mentioned Titus in there as well. Remember he said that he sent a guy to Ephesus, which is, in, the, in essence, it's the capital, if you will, the center of uh, the attentional center of, of uh, Asia. The man he sent was Tychicus. And by the way, he was a messenger to Ephesus back in, to the Ephesians. We read that in Ephesians 6.21. He was a messenger to the Colossians in Colossians 4.7. More than likely, he brought him the letters. And uh, he sent him to the renegade uh, group in Ephesus as well. We saw that in Second Timothy 4.12. The reason I say that is he definitely seems like he's a guy that he trusts to send. And he goes, oh, I might send him, or I might send him. But he goes, but Zenos and Apollos, send him on their journey with haste. Now, there's two ways to look at that. That may be that Zenos and Apollos carried this letter. Seems a little less likely from what we read in Acts, but it could be the case. One thing's for sure, they're not to stay any longer there. Or they're just there right now. And he's like, you need to get them going. So either way, that's the case, whether they brought the letter or not. Who has verse 14? Is it good? Oh. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. What's that? Greek. Greek, great. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. That's the end of the book. Now, a couple final statements and we're actually concluding. Titus is sent to a church in Crete. Well, it sounds like he wasn't even sent. Like Paul and him went there and he left him there. He's like, Paul's like, I need to go. I have some other place I need to be. Titus you're a no-nonsense guy, and of all the guys that I know that actually can stand up to this sort of Jewish circumcision group, you seem like the guy that can handle that. You seem like the guy with the spine. So, I need you to do something. I left you here for two reasons. I left you here to set that in order. To set it in order leads me to believe that the church existed before they got there. And... You need to start appointing elders. People that you can recognize. These guys are maturing. 
They're embracing God's word and they are coming, they're becoming an example. They're in a position to be an example to the church. Now he says churches in plural, so it's not just one particular church. He's going around from place to place, meeting people, walking with them, hearing how they, how they handle the world, how they handle the church, how they handle God's word. And they're looking at these things and they're saying, Is this guy, has this guy been polluted by the Greeks to just turn this into a mind? So it's all about arguing doctrine. Has he been influenced by the Romans to the point where now he's really kind of questioning what really is absolute truth? Has he been influenced by these Jewish group that's been following around where everything's about you having to get circumcised and Gentiles will always be second class believers? Because you don't want guys like that leading your church. You don't want guys like that influencing and raising up a generation. So you want to make sure you got the right guy. So I left you there to do that. And he goes, you know, but it seems to me, and this is what I kind of get, again, Loose mind seems to me that what's happening is Titus is a do it kind of guy. He's a bit of a no nonsense guy. He's having a hard time handing that mantle over to other people. So what's happening is he's going, bro. I need to remind you. You need to be making sure you're bringing in backup. I recognize you're doing this. We don't read anywhere. It's like stop being afraid. That doesn't seem to be Titus's issue. His issue is, you know, look at you need to. So maybe you're a little less familiar on what it really takes for a person to be in that position. Well, let me show you what it is. And by the way, I remind you, these guys, it was not about their abilities. It was about their character. I mean, how do they deal with, you know, how are they sober-minded people that live lives where their household, you go, oh, man, I wish that the church was like their house. I mean, is their house one where you're like, wow, look at the love and the, the way that the kids are in the right place and the wife and the husband are in their right place. Everyone kind of knows where they're at. And there's this safety and this comfort and this beauty and goes, because if it's not right in the house, it's certainly not going to be right in the church. And so you look at that and you go, see where they're at with that. And look at the wives. Are their wives slandering? I mean, are they, are they, are they dangerous women? Are they women content in Christ? And if they are, he goes, then, then, then encourage them to get to those people and go, all right, you guys, I need you to start reaching out to the younger in Christ, which leads me to believe people are getting saved. And so you need to go and reach out to those people because it isn't like you get old and retire in Christ. You actually get older and you recruit in Christ. You start pulling up other people and going, come on, I want you to come in and mature with me now. Raise them up in the family business. That's the idea here. Raise them up and let them know that the lost need to hear about Jesus and that the saved need to hear about Jesus. And we need to trust his word and his word is truth. And Jesus is our savior and we didn't deserve it. We never will. It's by grace. Don't let anyone flip that on you and don't let anyone flip the household. And when people are doing that, you get to the point where you look and you go, that ain't playing in this house. If you're going to play that game, go somewhere else. This isn't the place for it. You've been warned. You know where we stand on this. And now you've been, you've been rebuked at this point and there's the ultimatum now. If you're going to play that kind of game of dividing people, go somewhere else and do that. And he goes, look at and get the church and let them know as a church, we're not just to sit around and listen. We're going to get to a point where we need to take it and do something with it. Guess what we need to do? One thing is we need to start turning to each other and seeing how we can help invest in each other. But then we turn to the world and we see how we can get the gospel to them. And he goes, and the more we, the more we mature, the more we have to offer. Let's face it, some people, the moment you're married, you're in a new, more mature state of life than people who are single, even if they're older than you. If you have kids, it's even more so. People are going to watch what it looks like to have a Christian marriage or what it looks like to be Christian parents from that. Then with that, as you walk in Christ, people are going to look and they'll be like, let's face it, if we could say, what would be the perfect church? Because, I mean, do it from the inside out. 
what would you want the perfect church to be? How about that all the women are completely content in Christ so that the world can't drag them into the pitfalls that women can fall in? And that the men are godly examples of stability. They're stable men, men of their word, sound in what they say and what they believe and what they teach, and they practice what they preach. Wouldn't that be an amazing church? He goes, well, guess how that happens? We mature into it, and then we raise up the next generation to follow. That's the way that works. And he goes, so find people like that, and then start giving them the position of influence that they should have then in the church. And if you can't find them, then start investing until they do. Now, what would happen? That means that a revolution is a generation away. As those men invest, the next generation goes, man, I love Jesus. And you know why? Because the people that invest in me love Jesus. And I know that that's what a Christian looks like. I mean, I'm so thankful I didn't go to a horrible church. I mean, I went to some nutty things. But when we really first started getting grounded, I'll just safely say it was my brother's church. And it was a solid church. And one of the two things that I remember is they went straight through Scripture and believed every word of it. And second, they always give a chance for people to receive Jesus. And I went, I want to take that with me anywhere I go. And I'm so thankful for that because that was my eldership, in essence, raising me up. And I go, and it's like, I wanted to become like that because that was exactly where my heart was. And it's like, sooner or later, that's what you'll find is it's like, what you know, a student becomes like his teacher. So, if you're young, praise the Lord. May God raise you up so that there'll be a day you'll be in my seat. Looking at younger people going, don't just listen to me as the old guy who finally got a letter that says so. Officially, I'm officially old, apparently. <laughs> but rather be like, well, how do I go? What about in that interim time? In the interim time, you'll always be older in Christ than somebody who's younger in Christ. That should be simple to understand, right? Shantae will always be older than Ruthie. And maybe not in her behavior or in some cases. But she will chronologically never get younger than Ruthie. And when you came to Christ, the moment you started diving in the Word and falling in love with the Lord, that was longer ago than some people who are just starting. The question is, what do you want to see them become? Because it's what we should be or grow more towards, Right? And it's like, look, it, I'll never just go, this is exactly where you're supposed to be. From this point on, this is what it is. We don't plateau here. We continue to grow together. I want to love Jesus more every day till I die. And I want to be hot in pursuit of him. I want to trust his word more today. Now that the experts amass and all of that, I want all of that to be like, it isn't going to matter. Let's face it, in the same three things are going to attack us today. We say, God, grow us to not go, let's just turn this into a philosophy and just talk about it. Or, well, you know, they're kind of true and we're kind of true. No, the Bible's true and if it reconciles, it can be true. That's fine. But if it goes against Scripture, I'm going to side with Scripture. Expect that of me for the rest of your life. And if I ever change that, then smack me around in the greatest act of love. Some of you are going, well, I kind of hope he does. Just kidding. <laughs> but I mean, isn't that what you would expect of me? And that's what I would expect of you as you grow. I would expect for us to grow to that place where it says all things are permissible and not everything edifies. Well, we stop thinking about just what's permissible and we get more concerned with what edifies. And I want to grow on that. But also, 
I don't want to be in that place where I start thinking that if I just do enough stuff, God's going to respond to it. But rather that God is always offering and he wants me to respond to him. And in that, obedience is necessary. And in that, I should leave this worldly, you know, the worldly desires and cravings and embrace godliness as he's offered me to. But I can't do that to make God do something. I'm doing that in response to what he's done. Because it tells us that the grace of God has appeared to each man or to all mankind, teaching us that we should do this. Because his grace has appeared, this is my proper response to it. Well, that's what I want to pray for us. Is that, in essence, God purge from us those three things that have in any way crept into our own beings so that we could actually have a pure heart and conscience and be able to see it for what it really is. Well, let's face it, you don't want your body kind of healthy, do you? Wouldn't it be great if it was totally healthy? Well, there's less diseases in it today than there were yesterday. These are okay. I can live with that. How about no diseases? No Greek diseases? No Roman diseases? No diseases of legalism? Would you guys pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for what we can learn in Titus. And obviously, we've just scratched the surface. Oh, but there's a lot here. And we recognize, Lord, we are being reminded over and over and over again that that we should actually be about doing good things and not just thinking it. We're also being challenged, Lord, that that men are to be raised up and, and older women as well to be raised up to be examples of that truth and to live out that truth and to have integrity in our doctrine and to trust you, Lord, with the truth. Because you are a God who cannot lie. And we live in a culture of liars. We live in a culture where somehow the ends seem to justify the means. But we don't want to adopt those mindsets when we recognize those are antithetical. They're opposite of what you teach. And we also recognize that so much of what we do, we feel like we can do somehow feeling like we can get you in our debt if we just prayed enough and read enough and did enough. But Lord, put it put things proper where in response to your great grace and your amazing love that we would find ourselves responding appropriately, denying the worldly lusts of this world, but rather embracing the godly life you've called us to and raise us to maturity in a way so that we could be examples to others. Even now, Lord, start putting people upon our hearts that we could either either seek to, Lord, to, uh, to walk with, to grow more, uh, but and those that may be younger that we could reach out to, to encourage them to become more like you. And we recognize when we adopt that mindset, we are challenged ourselves to be more careful in our own behavior, knowing that others just may emulate that behavior, and we want to be wise in that. So, Lord, please mature us properly that we would all be the people you show us in Titus 2 to become. Lord, I pray for the women that they, as they mature, that they demonstrate a godly contentedness so that everything from their relationships to their time to the way that they view themselves to the way they view their families and their house would be viewed from the mindset of a content individual in you. And out of the overflow of that contentedness, they would serve properly. Prefer every man as we mature, 
that we would be so stable in you. And as we're stable in you, we wouldn't be men that are one moment walking tight with you and the next moment in some kind of cliff, but rather stable in our doctrine, stable in our love, and incorruptibility where we are unpollutable men. And in that, that we could help raise up other men to stay true, to where being pure, that all things would be pure, that nothing would be defiled, our minds nor our consciences, that nothing would be defiled, and that we would be, that the world would be unable to pollute us. So from this point on, God, we declare war against the things that would seek to keep us from being full on for you. And in that, Lord, out of response to the move of your own Holy Spirit in us right now, God, please make us people who are examples, exemplary, so that when people look, your word would not be blasphemed and that the enemy would have nothing to throw at us that's legitimate, but rather that they'd be ashamed that they even went after us in the first place because they would see that we really are the real deal. So make us the real deal, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.